what's the one thing that always sticks in my mind is that he would come out and say, when he first came out of prison and went to the other people in the Nation of Islam, he was struck by how he felt they were being lazy about spreading the Nation of Islam. Mm. And he was like, you know, wait, you told me like this is the whole real reality of what's going on in the universe and this is what's going to save the black man. This was going to save our people from the condition we're in. Don't you see the condition we're in? You have the thing that's going to save and you're happy just sitting back in this room and having like two or three people here and just yep. telling this message and everyone's out there. He said, no, we have to go out there. We have to tell people. We have to work day after day. So people could then talk to him and see that he had that passion for it. So even people that didn't follow specifically was teaching that had love and respect for him because they could see he was doing it sincerely. So that's something that really stuck with me, I think, back then. And I wanted to be, like I said, like that, like someone who, if I ever was inspired by something, that I wouldn't just have that feeling, but I would go ahead and, and, uh, and really embrace it and work for it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. My name is Mahin, and along with me today are my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim. Today we've got a very special guest, Abdul Malik Ryan. Abdul Malik Ryan is a Chicago native whose reading of African American history, and specifically the life of Malcolm X, led to his accepting Islam in 1994. He was one of the founding members and is a past president of the board of directors of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, better known as Iman. After receiving his undergraduate degree from DePaul University, he went on to obtain his law degree from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He spent 14 years working as an attorney for children in Chicago's foster care system before he transitioned into his current full-time role as the assistant director for religious diversity at DePaul University. Abdul Malik, welcome. Jazakallah khair for coming on the show. Assalamu alaikum. Nice to be here. Alhamdulillah. Good to see you. So Abdul Malik, you're like an Irish kid from Oak Park, right? I mean, how, how does someone like you get so passionate about African-American history at an age when most high school kids have, like, frankly, other concerns? SubhanAllah. Well, actually, uh, as as a young kid and, and, and as a high schooler, I guess I was, like other kids in some ways, I was really into sports. I was really into, you know, watching sports and playing sports. But I was also somewhat unusual in that uh, I think mainly because of my parents, who were both teachers. Uh, there were always a lot of books around the house. My mom was always reading. And so I really got into reading when I was young. So it was actually through, a lot of it was through reading as, as a young person. I really liked to read a lot of books. And like I said, I kind of started out reading like sports books. I used to really love like sports books. I love this one book, book called Baseball's Greatest Games. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went through like all these games. I just remember the way it was written. It really puts you like in the game and you're like remembering these 1905 things. That really like got me into, uh, in that weird way through sports, it got me into history and reading more about history and understanding different things. And uh, so in high school, I started getting really, and, and one thing about my personality that may come up uh, throughout the conversation is I'm kind of, uh, in some ways I call it like an addictive personality or whatever. Whenever I get into something, I really get into it. Like I don't just dabble in it. I like really go hard into something. Then you're just like Sim. But yeah, keep going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
Uh, so like, so, so I just didn't say, oh, I'm kind of interested in history. I'm kind of interested in African-American history. I like decided like this summer, I'm going to like read as many books as I can about African-American history. And I'm going to purposely find like the longest books that I can read and like really try to go through and do as much as I can. So, so I did that. And I think that gave me a unique perspective on things at that level. Uh, so a lot of it was with books. I was kind of a loner kid, uh, in high school, did have a small group of friends, but then I would interact with certain individuals as well. Uh, and some of it was through my brother, actually. Uh, one thing, you know, things always happen in strange ways, but I think my brother actually somehow had come across a book of Malcolm X's speeches. And my brother had it, and that's how I first even heard of, I think, as far as I can remember. I'm sure there were other things I don't remember at all, but as far as I can remember, the first time I either heard of Islam or Muslims or whatever. So it was through that that book of speeches of Malcolm X. And actually that was a book of speeches from the nation of Islam. So they were like kind of crazy speeches that kind of like got your attention about like the, 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 the myth that the nation of Islam had about the creation of the white race and, and the way, why the world was the way that it was and all those kind of things. So, but in addition to all that nation of Islam teaching just the personality of Malcolm and his intelligence and the way he interacted with things and the way he used history and the way he used, uh, his love for his people really came through to me. So I really became kind of really, like I said, not half, not just kind of interested in Malcolm X, but I became kind of obsessed with Malcolm X and with African-American history. And around what age is this? So this is in high school. Okay. So around 17, 16, 17. And, um, You're an 80s kid, right? I, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. We're born in 74, yeah. So, <laughs> and you know, what, what this happened is I, my interest was actually a little before but then what happened is the the Spike Lee movie hit of Malcolm X. And so then I was, you know, kind of, I always like to stress to people and kind of get them to see like that I wasn't just following the fad of everyone else. But but it did become a big, more general thing of kind of the X hats and everyone got into Malcolm X. So I was, you know, kind of representing that and like wearing like African medallions and stuff. So I was also someone, like I said, was a little unusual in high school and I was kind of searching for different identities and, and looking into things. And that was one thing I kind of went through. And again, for me, a lot of it was books. And even though it would manifest in some of the way I would dress and the way I would talk and stuff, but it would, uh, it wasn't really like a social thing. Like for some people, it may be very social based on, you know, meeting people, interacting with people. I was, I was really into hip hop, but like I, I, I actually went, I went to like one hip hop show in my life, you know, prior to like when E-Man started doing stuff. <laughs> so it wasn't me being into hip hop just meant like I listened to the tapes alone and like when I was walking or in my room, it didn't mean I, I was into the whole social scene of hip hop necessarily, but that's just my personality. So I got into Malcolm X and Islam and, and I was blessed in high school in Oak Park. I went to high school in Oak Park, uh, Oak Park River Forest High School that at that time they introduced in elective for both African history and African American history. And I had two teachers for those classes who were very different from each other, extremely different from each other. Uh, and I don't even think they liked each other very much. <laughs> and they actually, some things happened, but, but both of them in their own ways influenced me a lot. And, uh, so I really had that passion. And so I, I showed up at college at DePaul really like into this African American history thing. And also with kind of an underlying, desire to know more about Islam, even though I was not really interested in religion at that time. So showing up at DePaul, I was like, okay, I want to learn more. Since Malcolm like made it clear, even though like I said, I wasn't religious, I was more interested in the politics and the history and stuff. He kind of made it clear that, you know, especially white people, if they're going to follow his message, 
they should really look into Islam. Hmm. And like I said, I also had this idea where I wanted to make it clear that I was serious about this thing. I wasn't just like in for the fashion or the like, you know, you know, a lot of questions could be raised about why is why is a white kid wearing like Malcolm X stuff and, and, and what does he think it means? And so I wanted to be clear that I was very serious about it. So uh, I said, like, I need to find some like uh, Muslim students at DePaul and like just tell them, like, I'm really into Malcolm X. I want to. So in addition to the classes I was taking in African-American history, tell them, like, I want to learn more about Islam and hang around them. Um, at that time, actually, what we now have is called Ummah, United Muslims Moving Ahead. That's the name of the MSA at DePaul. That actually got started while I was a student there. Um, so prior to that, like my first year there, there wasn't there wasn't an MSA at DePaul. There was kind of like some called Names, which was North African and Middle Eastern students. Oh, I didn't know so, that. So yeah, hmm. so that was kind of where I first went. And but I met some people there who were involved in that organization who kind of knew already and were kind of moving to transition it to to become an MSA because they were people the the crew that was at DePaul at that time. Um, obviously, it influenced me a lot who happened to be there and who I happened to meet. But it was. Uh, it was an interesting experience to to get in touch with them. So I had this kind of grounding in in the in the African American Muslim community. But then the people I met there, we would like sit in a. I, I remember distinctly like one of the gatherings I had during a Ramadan, which was before I actually took Shahada, but was I was already like participating in Ramadan and fasting. And I remember like we had this small like potluck iftar gathering and like just re- looking around and realizing to me that was still like a new experience sitting on the floor sharing food. In kind of a spiritual environment. It wasn't something I was used to. And just looking around and realizing that like out of the 12, 13 people there, they were from like 11 different countries and and the, and then they still were all united by this spiritual experience. And many of them, the crew that happened to be there were also united by a very strong desire to kind of uh, change society, change the world really. That they were, they were people, a lot of them came from Muslim backgrounds, but not necessarily super religious, some more than others, but they're all learning about their faith, getting really inspired about that we need to do something to change things and that this Islam may be the way to do that. So they were very excited. So were about they that. also inspired by the message of uh, Brother Malcolm? So yeah, so some of, some of them more than others, some of them were getting, you know, learning more about Malcolm, especially the ones that came from like other countries and stuff. But uh, definitely there were some, you know, who were African-American or even some of the other Muslims who grew up here who were who were also inspired by Malcolm X. You know, I think that's that's definitely a thing. Uh, and sometimes it can be, you know, sometimes it's a challenge because we have to hold our youth to like really be serious about it, just like I will hold myself to really be serious about it. I think a lot of Muslim youth in America, especially from immigrant backgrounds, they do look at Malcolm X just like they look at Muhammad Ali, just other figures who are well-known and popular Muslims in America, which is a great asset that we have that makes them feel better about being Muslim. And, you know, as someone you can tell your friends, like, you, I'm Muslim like, you know, I'm a Muslim like Muhammad Ali or I'm Muslim like mm. Malcolm X. You know, that's a pro- way of being proud and being Muslim, especially in American context. Are you paying homage to Malcolm X by wearing the the horn-rimmed glasses? Definitely. Yeah, For our definitely, audience who yeah. can't uh, <laughs> see him, glasses, he's got these uh, horn-rimmed glasses that aren't really too popular anymore, but... So you know there there's a message behind it. <laughs> yes. They go in phases. Sometimes they get popular, you know, in the hipster generation they can get popular. But yeah, I try to just keep them all the time. Uh, again, as a sign of that commitment. That's awesome. Alhamdulillah. One thing I notice about uh, individuals that are inspired by Malcolm X, they all have a different story of what Malcolm X inspired them with. 
some people will talk about his Hajj story. Like you just mentioned, you saw so many people from different countries and he talks about that same thing where all these different people in Hajj. They were. So what section kind of told you, wow, this is the most inspira- inspirational portion of this book that's going to change my life? You know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, wow, this is something that's going to change my life, right? Yeah. So what, what, I'm pretty sure there are many, yeah. but off the top of your head, can you remember something just to... Yeah, I mean, there are so many and sometimes it's hard. And, and as we go through and I talk a little bit more about my conversion, like... I just think, you know, it's interesting. I, I, people talking about their conversion stories is always a uh, is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing to look back because some people people like to hear conversion stories. Uh, sometimes, as converts, we like to tell the stories. Sometimes we get we don't like to tell the stories. Yeah, but it's it's always interesting to look back and think, you know. And again, that this is the way memory works and history works. Is that you're probably always revising it in your memory. And then we don't know if someone had played like a tape recording of what actually happened back then. The way I remember it now may or may not be exactly the same. So I I say all of that just to say, although I think that's an important thing in and of itself, because I think part of part of the memory and the way we remember certain things, I think these are, these are ayat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really about what sticks with us and what we remember. So, but particularly in the book, I would say, um, you know, I'm really inspired. You know, Malcolm is such a combination of of someone who was, you know, willing to change. I mean, I think that's the most inspirational thing about the story. And that's kind of the way that Alex Haley chose to write the story mm-hmm. as well as. And I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy back and forth over how much of a role Alex Haley played and Malcolm played. But my understanding from reading the history is that obviously Alex Haley as a writer kind of shaped the format that he wanted the book to be in. And he may have had his own reasons for wanting to do that but Malcolm saw saw what he was doing and saw it and he liked it and I think it's because it was in a very good way of telling how these and I believe that in Malcolm's story how these ayat came to him from Allah and he took these ayat and then he was open to seeing them open to changing and then he was very serious like it's easy to feel like just those moments of inspiration they're so important but then it's the work that comes in and so I think the book does a great job of capturing both of those, capturing how serious he was about the nation of Islam when he was in the nation of Islam and giving you a sense of how dedicated he was to it and doing the work. And again, this is something I often say to Muslims is a lesson that we have to learn that if we, you know, Muslims are very good at using like big high words about Islamic things like, mm-hmm. oh, the Quran is so great, you wouldn't believe it. Or, oh, yes. the, the Islam is so beautiful or, oh, Ramadan is so powerful, but People, like words are easy to say, but people can see like what you're really into. Yes. And people can see what you dedicate your time to. So if someone says they love the Quran, but they don't read it a lot, or they don't really understand it that well, then then, then you know that's not really true. So Malcolm, he he, he would be, is, is, what struck, one, one thing that always sticks in my mind is that he would come out and say, when he first came out of prison and went to the other people in the nation of Islam, he was struck by how he felt they were being lazy about spreading the nation of Islam. Mm. And he was like, you know, wait, you told me like, this is the whole real reality of what's going on in the universe. And this is what's going to save the black man. This was going to save our people from the condition we're in. Don't you see the condition we're in? You have the thing that's going to save. And you're happy just sitting back in this room and having like two or three people here and just yeah. telling this message and everyone's out there. He said, no, we have to go out there. We have to tell people we have to work day after day. So 
people could then talk to him and see that he had that passion for it. So even people that didn't follow specifically what he was teaching, they had love and respect for him because they could see he was doing it sincerely. So that's something that really stuck with me, I think, back then. And I wanted to be, like I said, like that, like someone who, if I ever was inspired by something, that I wouldn't just have that feeling, but I would go ahead and and uh, and really embrace it and work for it. So at what point did you actually start to seriously consider Islam? as a religion, as, as a faith for you. Yeah, that's an interesting story. And this gets into kind of my theory about how things happen and why people do the things they do in a weird way. But I would say that I went from, you know, I went from a process where I was not really interested in religion or thinking about religion to a pro- to a point where I was basically Muslim already and, and just waiting for something to happen in like a couple of years. And it happened over a seamless process that I don't even remember. Just the process of starting to hang around the Muslims, like I said, being serious about this thing, learning more. Then they would say, like, let's do this thing. And this was, you know, at Paul brother uh, Ramina Shashibi, who's, you know, uh, the other one of the founders of Iman, would, would tell me, like, come on, let's go. Let's go down the south side. Like, we're working at this Arab-American community center. We're working with the youth here. Come and help us out. And I'll come and help him out. And just having amazing experiences there. And then all of a sudden, you know, he would just turn to me one day and be like, you know, so... Like I said, I was already fasting when I was with him. I would pray with him and stuff. And he would just be like, so have you just thought about it if you're going to become Muslim? <laughs> and I was kind of like, yeah, I think, you know, I basically, yeah, I, I already thought I was in a way. But, you know, and so I don't remember, you know, back at the time, it's interesting. I don't remember, have it, unlike a lot of people, it wasn't like a big thing weighing in my mind. Like, oh, That's there's awesome. the Shahada. Do I, am I going to take the Shahada or not take the Shahada? I don't remember spending time like worrying about that or not worrying about that. It was just something that I came into and became part of the community. And then I was just told like, yeah, so then alhamdulillah, we went, went down to Masjid Fatir and, and took the Shahada after Juma one day there. So it's beautiful. Uh, a beautiful experience I always remember. And and the re- and brother Mike Swice was on the on the podcast, and he was mentioning about his conversion. And I was mentioning to him, and I, just again, there's a big hikmah where even through the hadith of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, why the lies of the Sahaba were preserved and how they became Muslim. Because when you see whatever life it is that the individual is living, but if you have a love for Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and you see how someone comes into that fold. It is a jolt and it's a, it's a type of inspiration for those individuals who witness that because they want to know how that happens. And they see Islam in a different lens now. Like, I, I, I'm being like 100% real here. If I heard of 10 different conversions, there's 10 different compartments that opened up to me about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works, how we'll never even imagine. Like, th- this is the first time I heard of a story of somebody saying, I just kind of got naturally embedded into it. And that itself is an ayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept you, you know, in, in utmost tranquility. You weren't worried. You weren't stressed out about anything. And you actually felt like you were Muslim. And it didn't even become like edgy for you. You weren't nervous. You didn't know, oh, who am I going to tell? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works in amazing ways and we'll never uh, understand the wisdom in all of it. But that's why I love hearing uh, how people come to the fold of Islam. And Malcolm X obviously played a, a huge uh, role in that for yourself, you know. But uh, um, moving forward, when you converted to Islam, what was the uh, family- reverted brother? Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right, get it sorry. right. I always get confused. Someone actually got mad at me for that once. He's like, it's not converted, it's reverted. I was like, sorry, dude. I, I just want to know the concept. I don't want to. <laughs> no feelings attached to the words. But uh, but uh, but how was your family life after that? Or your you know people around you and friends and Alhamdulillah. Yeah. So um, 
I think it was, and this is one of the reasons why I went back into chaplaincy work and why I kind of love the whole college environment. I happened to be uh, living on campus at DePaul. So I think the fact that I wasn't living with my parents day to day, it made it so that I kind of, like we, like we said, I became Muslim. And then it was, and then the question kind of came like, I think it somehow got through my siblings or something back to them that <laughs> my parents said I was Muslim. And it wasn't even that I was hiding it or anything, but I... Just like I didn't really, it wasn't really pondering like the Shahada. I wasn't really pondering like when should I tell my parents. Like it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was. It was going to be inevitable. Parent. Yeah, you it was. It. Gonna, they were going to find out. Yeah. But it was like it was like anything. So, and Alhamdulillah, I would say that my parents obviously at first, you know, we have to remember this is like pre nine eleven. Really, Islam was not something that was well known to, to them, or mm-hmm. like of what was. I mean, uh, but my parents, Alhamdulillah, and everyone who converts have such different experiences. But my parents were very accepting and welcoming people, and uh, you know, liberal is the word we kind of use. They were they were very liberal people uh, in the best traditions of American liberalism that they were accepting of different of of a lot of different people, and so they were cool. I mean, I will never forget, and you know. Uh, I will never forget the, uh, you know, I used to, so during the summers when I came back home and I'm going to Juma on the west side of Chicago, I like worked in Muhammad Masjid and my mom would like drive me there. I didn't have like a driver's license or anything. So, so my mom would like drive me to Juma and drop me off there. Then as the summers, I, as I continued to work at, uh, at the Arab American Community Center on 63rd Street on the southwest side and my, uh, my parents are living in Oak Park. I would come there. A lot of days my mom would just drive me all the way there and drop me off. Um, other days I would take the train and the bus. But it was just, you know, to think uh, uh, to think of someone doing that for the child about something they don't really understand yeah. and don't follow. Like wow. when I think about it now, you know, alhamdulillah, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, Allah knows best. Uh, my mom returned to Allah and Allah knows best what her situation is. And we just trust in Allah. But we hope that those... Those things are just amazing things. We marvel at what they what our parents do for us. But um, um, so yeah. And your question, family life. So I would say that there there was so much support for me, and to this day, there's so much support uh, from my family. If I go to any of my siblings' house or my parents' house, they always, you know, make sure to have like they go, and especially in Bayzabi Hamid, they get like a you know a halal turkey for Thanksgiving gatherings and all these kind of things. So. They're so embracing of my Islam and my family. The only issues we had, you know, like like anybody, and I, I almost hate to say this because this is what everyone says, but like we all, a lot of us, when we convert, we go through like a stage where we're a little more like strident than 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 we are later on. And I don't know how that came out exactly with my mom, but there was that concern there. So with my mom, because she's such a liberal person, she's like, you can do, you should do whatever you believe in. But if you start, if you're going to, she would, you know, kind of push me a little bit. If she, if she would suggest that I'm saying like, oh, this is the only right way and everyone should do what I'm doing. And if you're not doing it, you're, you're, you know, you're wrong and stuff that she's uncomfortable with that. So she, she would have a little concern about that and we'd have conversations, which was good. I thought I got to know my mom a lot better through that actually, because, you know, sometimes we forget about our parents that they have their own lives. Yeah. And like, we don't think of them as they were a teenager and what they went through. And so my mom, you know, growing up in a very Catholic family, and then she was uh, studying to become a nun for many years, was what they call a novice, which is like someone who's living in the community as a nun, but hasn't taken the final vows yet. She was that way for several years. So she had, uh, by the time I come around, like she, yeah, she took us to church, but she was always kind of, you know, she didn't agree with a lot of the hierarchy of the church and was kind of, you know, never a person 
And I think this affected my Islam in that my mom was never, I, I can never remember, and again, this may be what you remember, but I can never remember my mom or other people, and part of it is being Catholic too and what we stress. I never remember anyone saying like, Jesus, you know, died for your sins and that's why, you know, we're Christians and all these kind of things. That wasn't my understanding of even Christianity at that time. My understanding with my mom gave me was just that Jesus, peace be upon him, was this amazing like figure who came and just loved the poor and stood up for justice and, and gave people a different a view of what the world could be like and that these are the people that inspire us and these are the people we should be like. So as I became a Muslim, like it's a very Islamic idea of who the prophet uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, was. So... I hope she got a sense of that from my from my showing her, but I think that's what she really believed in. But, you know, so I'm saying in our conversations, we would get a sense that she would say, you know, I know you think that you just discovered this idea of a relationship with God and like taking it seriously mm. and like, and you never think that I actually went through this and I know these things and, and I have my own reasons for why I do what I do. So, so it makes it, you know, we should always realize that's something as a chaplain that also you realize is that, um, a lot of times you interact with people, you're speaking to a gathering, you're making like assumptions, you're trying to encourage people, you're trying to get people to do things. But then when you come back in your room and little office and you hear what is actually going on in people's lives, there's a lot more going on than you would imagine. There's, there's a lot, lot of history. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of things people have been through that you've never been through. And you really become, even though you still want to inspire people, you really become very careful about how you... you can sometimes talk down to people and and say like why do you do this or why aren't you doing that or something like that because you never know what what people are struggling with and what they're going through so alhamdulillah so that's a long long way of answering that my my relationship with my family at the end of the day after a couple of hiccups and then the whole marriage process my parents you know were very um kind of confused about the marriage process your wife is pakistani right she is so alhamdulillah so she's uh, she's from Pakistan and grew up here in Bolingbrook since she was six. So, you know, kind of saying like coming to my parents and saying like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm going to marry this person who you've never met. And like, <laughs> I've, I'm, I, I haven't dated her or anything like we, we haven't been together. Like it's kind of a strange thing. So alhamdulillah. So it's just like, yeah, I'm going to go to meet her parents. Like, and then maybe the week after that, you can come with me and meet her parents. And, like, and so it was interesting. But coming from that, it seems like they came from a, a good, healthy, conservative type background. And they probably kind of respected that. Like, you know what? He's not dating. He's not into that. And he's actually doing this out of respect. And, you know, he's thinking things, you know, thinking about things in a different way. I think they could understand that. Yeah, I think they could right? definitely understand that. You know, but they're also products of the 60s. Okay, And this also teaches me something, you know, really that we have to think about a lot. And actually a lot of the data shows this, that a lot of the people uh, with super liberal like ideas about the world, they're the ones who actually in many ways live the most traditional lives and their children live the mm. most traditional lives in America. So it's, you know, in America, you look at like people with super liberal, they may have super liberal ideas, yeah, but the way they live their life is very like very much centered around values and stuff like that. I see. Yes. So like my parents, they weren't trying to force. So the the point I get about what I may have learned and what I try to do with my own kids and stuff is that the best, the best thing to do is to model values. If you live according to your values, your kids will follow that. Yeah. If you just lecture about values, and especially if you don't follow it, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. It totally backfires. And they that's, react to how we act, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They learn from our actions, not from our words. Yeah. And that's a major, uh, to be honest, and it's by no means limited to Muslims, but that's actually, a, I think, a crisis that we have in the Muslim community. I'm thinking more and more. Yeah. Is that 
um, we part of what I talked about before about how we talk so much about how great something is. So we talk so much about how great the Quran is and how much we love the Quran and it's such a miracle. But if you talk to the average Muslim, they're not connected with the Quran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to be honest, they're not connected with the Quran. And that could actually pose either a, a psychological problem for them or poses a pro, you know, poses a, really a, ma- a mentality of hypocrisy where they know we're supposed to say how great the Quran is, but we don't really connect with it ourselves individually yeah we're supposed to talk about these values that we that islam says never backbite but then we just backbite we're supposed to talk about islam being about unity but we know the muslims aren't unified all these kind of things it's a deep it's a deep burden that the community has to work with i think has yeah, to wrestle yeah. With. It, it hurts a lot of people i know when i was growing up that was one of my main problems with connecting to islam was just seeing that so much hypocrisy and so much people saying stuff that they didn't really mean, you know. Um, I mean, maybe hypocrisy is a little bit strong of a word, but I meant like people parroting stuff that they don't, they yeah. didn't really understand, and you would see their actions didn't really reflect what the beliefs are, you know. And that kind of was very challenging, and I, I can't believe how you would have uh, dealt with that kind of stuff, especially meeting um, the average Muslim. And I think. We have, uh, just looking back and reflecting back at myself, I think there were just unreasonable expectations I had with how uh, the dynamics of society work, that people aren't going to be like that. You can't expect a society of saints and uh, people who are going to be following the letter of the book, you know? And I think that's a a pitfall that many... Uh, individuals at a young age when they start practicing they fall into because they read all the inspirational stories about the Sahaba and they see how things are and they see a model of how Islam was and then they expect everyone to be like that the same time you were and that becomes very problematic and we have to understand that's why people we are going to be how our shepherd is right you know if you have a good shepherd then you're going to be you're going to be healthy and as human beings that's how we are Wherever we live, that's how that's what molds us, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Abdul Malik, how, how did you deal with the, this this whole political side of Islam in terms of the craziness that's going on with all the different countries in the world, and you know, being an outsider just coming to Islam, it seems like it would be something uh, uh, difficult to swallow. Seeing, yeah, that's an interesting interesting question, and I would say like. Remembering again that this is pre nine eleven, so it wasn't like this stuff was in the news all the time, and it wasn't like because I obviously I grew up here, I wasn't I wasn't necessarily as immersed in the reality of the Muslim world as as uh, some other people might be who are connected through their family or whatever. But I will say this: one thing to note is just it's amazing if I look back on those days how people always would feel like the Muslims are under siege, okay? Yeah. And even in America, like back then we would be complaining about this and that, which were legitimate grievances or these movies, how they portray I was just going to say they mentioned something about a movie, but yeah. <laughs> yes, they would mention this, um, you know, and then there were real things about secret evidence and stuff. But even then, like the scope of the problems we had, if we look back on it now, is like is like laughable how small it was. But back then we were talking about how much we're under siege. So throughout my whole time that I've been a Muslim, I can say, and I don't know if this is something about human nature or just the times we're living in, is like the Muslims were always talking about how bad things are for our community and how we're so under siege and, and in a feeling of desperation. And literally every year since I've been Muslim, the situation of the Muslim Ummah has gotten worse. I mean, yes. just from a just from a, a, a objective point of view of looking at the actual situation. So 
we would never have imagined that that could be the case uh, at that time. Um, so it's, it is something that weighs on you. But I will say coming from like entering Islam through Malcolm X, through the tradition of the black Muslim community, um, and through a lot of the Muslims that I met at that time, um, also, and you know, Islam at that time in the nineties, this is the nineties. Uh, sometimes we like to talk about the heyday, the glory day of the nineties Islam. And I, you know, I have a lot of nostalgia for it as well. You know, Islam, both from whether you came from the African-American tradition and, and, and uh, of Islam, which is rooted in like the black church tradition. So it's very political in the sense that it's very much about societal change. OK. Yes. And then the other Islam that I was picking up was very much rooted in Qutb uh, and Maududi, basically. OK, so it's very much rooted, you know, Ikhwan al-Muslimin and Jamaat Islami. So it was very much rooted in also in a type of Islam that was a product of a reaction to colonialism and a desire to change things for the better and to harness that. So that was all the Islam that I was being taught. Like, that was the Islam I was being taught. It's not like today where a lot of people feel like, I want to have this spiritual, like, alone thing in the mountains or whatever, and <laughs> and um, all this politics keep intruding on it or whatever. To us, that's what Islam was. Islam was about a relationship with God, but then changing the world based on that relationship with God. And that's what that's what we were in for. That's what inspired. Like, a lot of times I have to give a lot of these interfaith talks where we talk about, like, the role of uh, social change and social justice and our faith traditions. And people are always talking about how their faith traditions lead them to fight for social justice. And of course, there's a rich tradition in that Islam. But I always say, actually, for me, it was my love for fighting for social justice that led me to become Muslim. And, okay, and you know, I wanted, I wanted to touch upon that because you see that Malcolm X, one of the highlights of his life and his biography is social change. And before you... Uh, even announced the testimony of faith, you're still doing social work now, right? And you're around Muslims. And then you become Muslim and you're talking about chaplaincy, which you're dealing with human beings on a regular basis on all different levels. And then that's where Iman comes in, I guess, right? So that that transition, even before Islam, you were Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided you towards social change, right? Yeah. And, and that's how I'm seeing it as an as as an onlooker to, yeah. to your to your story. It's no an doubt. amazing story. And how did now you becoming a prominent figure with Iman and then chaplaincy work its way into this? Yeah. So I think that's very that's very true about kind of so Iman and the way Iman evolved for me is personally tied in with my whole life story. Like to me, like I can't separate Iman from my life. And so that's why it's kind of weird now I look back. Iman is progress so much over time and uh you know i can even go to iman and there's some people like who maybe came later who and i'm not as involved day to day for a while i haven't been um you know a lot of during different times you're in different events i get more involved again but it's uh some people may not even know me and you know a lot of us have that old experience that's kind of an old ex you know the pure experience of the older person who you know but it's weird when you feel like iman is you yeah. And you go back there and then people, or even people I know who don't associate with me, Iman, or they'll tell me like, hey, do you, have you ever heard of Iman or this brother? Oh, by the way, to our listeners, he's not talking about Iman, his belief. He's talking about the organization. That's but right. he's talking about, yeah, he's talking about the organization. Inner Iman. city Muslim, Muslim Action, Action Network. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. So, the organization Iman. But I would say the organization Iman you know, it contributed a lot to my growth. Alhamdulillah, we liked acronyms back then. Of your Iman. We picked your both. It's a growth of my Iman. Yeah. And just like Ummah, the organization Ummah, is really my idea of what the Ummah should be like. But 
um, going back to what you were saying, the the growth of my iman in terms of I was wrestling with, we use iman to wrestle with, okay, we have this idea of our faith. How should it impact the society? Yeah. And we would, you know, do our work. We'd go out and work with the youth and we'd have a summer camp and we'd have like, and, you know, then progress to, you know, food pantry and medical clinic and, and as well as like dawah things like bonds of brotherhood. We had a masjid in the community. So you had faith and social change and, and building relationships and community organizing and all these things. We're really trying to say, how should our Islam be activated? How should our Iman be activated in the world? And especially at the beginning, we used to have so many of these like philosophical conversations about like, is this, is this really helping? Is it, should we be like more revolutionary? Is like doing charity work just putting off like the big revolution that's going to come? Is should we just focus on dawah? What does dawah mean? Like, should we just be giving people the truth of this message? And so, I think it's a beautiful experience, and that's part of what you're saying about uh, about um, the unrealistic expectations that people sometimes have when they first get inspired by Islam, whether they're a convert yes. or a young person. And like you said, we always conveniently forget how they were like a month before. Yes. And all of a sudden are just can't believe everyone else is not like how they are right today. And it, But once you live longer and you realize that even when you are inspired and even when you are trying to do the right thing, that you make mistakes or that you're not, sh- you do things and you're not sure if it was the right thing, that life in the dunya is complicated. And even you study Islam more and you realize that the basics are clear. Yeah. And then b- the detailed things, they're a difference of opinion. Yes. And people who are sincere and amazing people study the text and devote their life to it and they have difference of opinion. Yeah. And things are not always clear as you, as you used to think they were. And that's just a sign of getting more mature and being able to handle that. Yeah. And you think you think at one point in your life that having strong iman is always being firm 100% on what the right answer is, but you realize as you get older that sometimes it's good to be firm on what you on, on what you believe in, but sometimes the fact that you can't accept that other people disagree with you is really a sign of weakness of your iman, not strength of your iman. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um what was the age of revolution of failure according to Abdul Malik Ryan? <laughs> Well, Looking what, the, yeah. the age of revolution from the seventies, you know, Che Guevara and Malcolm X, everyone's you know trying to carry on everything. It seemed like the culmination of all that, all those different ideas, was going to be the Arab Spring, and it just seems like everything just kind of popped and nothing it, makes sense anymore. Subhanallah, it, it's a reality, and we have to face that reality and not get just not 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 despair about it in a way. But we, it's good to name it and acknowledge it. I yeah. mean, like you said, and that the Arab Spring is another perfect example. Where just when we thought we were at the lowest point, something came out of nowhere that like inspired, I know me and other people so much and so much hope came into our, that because you're at the point where you're beaten down and you're, om- you don't, you're not giving up, but you, om- part of you is giving up. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see something you're like, wow, I can't believe this came out of nowhere. And you're so inspired. And then to see it go to where it is now, where things are again, even worse than ever before. It's just, it, it can't help but. There has to be a lesson in it. I'll oh, there say is. that. There's, There's a, a lot of lessons. A huge lesson. I'm telling you, I was in Egypt at the time of the Arab Spring happened. And uh, it was literally overnight, everything changed. Overnight, everything changed. And people, when that changed, it's as if they were chained down for so long. And all of a sudden, they just opened up. And when in your small rural areas, when there was no law, Everyone was more united and more. It was it was a very crazy phenomenon, because when there was law, everyone was when there was a law and there was order, quote unquote, 
everyone was kind of apprehensive and there were kind of, you know, foreigners were kind of staying away from the Egyptians. The Egyptians were kind of, you know, apprehensive of the foreigners. But then when there was no law, everyone was just drinking tea with each other on the streets, under campfires. And it was it was really crazy. Everything changed. And obviously now, unfortunately, and the wisdom is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, things went back to even worse. But again, there's lots of ibrah and there's lots of things to ponder upon in there that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even over something so small, can change something and bring it back to however he wants. And it's Allah's dunya. Allah can do whatever he wants, right? Um, But one of my main questions I've been itching to ask you is, uh, I have to kind of do a chaplaincy type faith-based counseling, right? And you have to, on a regular basis, through iman and as a Muslim chaplain, Right, you have to see all different types of individuals uh, that are going through so many different types of struggles. Right, what would you say is the most prevalent type of issue that you have to deal with on a regular basis? Sorry to change the gears here, but this is something <laughs> I've been itching to ask guys. You guys cool with that? Go ahead, jump ahead, man. <laughs> it's all good. I was Go like ahead. an hour later. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, alhamdulillah. So. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to say just one. Th- and I know you're not only asking me to say one thing, but I think um, a lot of it is the context you're in. So I would just say generally, um, obviously, it's kind of a cliche to say that in a college environment, you're dealing with a lot of issues of of marriage slash relationships slash you know. And and I hope that still to some extent, it's still it's a little bit. You know, our community is changing uh, as, you know, in, in line with the broader society where you have a segment of the, of the Muslims who are not interested in getting married young, okay? They're already clear that, like, you know, like marriage is not even on my radar till after medical school or after this yeah. or after that. Totally. And so, and, which is its own problem in itself. Yeah. I mean, to say that you're just not going to get married until your late 20s or something, that's 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 not really going to work long term. Uh, as a, as a as a community, it may work for some individuals, but as a large community, there's going to be a lot of problems with that. So you're still dealing with with because human beings not and sometimes as Muslims, especially on the male side, we just limit it to uh, physical things. But it's not just physical; like emotionally, we need relationships with people, of and course. if we don't have that, but unfortunately, men are not usually able to talk about that. So. I will say first. I will say that the majority of people come to me, especially in the chaplaincy role, are sisters. Okay, um, more than brothers. Brothers come to me about certain specific issues, but more so sisters. A lot of it is family issues too. Like I said, you you really learn what goes on in some families, um, which you may not see on the surface all the time. And one of the thing about dealing with college students that you always have to be, you have to always keep both things in mind. And I have to. This is what I have to keep learning as a chaplain and. And a lot of it I learned, you know, working uh, as a lawyer in the foster care system as well. Um, you have to, one, keep in mind that there's a there's things out there that are worse, are, are things out there that are big challenges for people that you have to take them as seriously as they are for the people. And they may be more than anything you've ever dealt with. Like you may not have ever dealt with something like that in your own life. At the same time, you have to realize that sometimes when you're 18 years old, everything is very dramatic to you. Yeah even if it's not the end of the world. So how sometimes it's a challenge to separate out when, when someone comes and talks to you, you can tell like they're going through an absolutely wrenching thing, but it's hard to get an objective take on whether it really is or it's something that will pass. Mm-hmm. But in, in the end of the day, you can't really just tell them like this will pass. Like you can't ever tell someone like this is not as important as you're making it out to be. It doesn't help the situation. Yeah. So um, the biggest issues, family issues, relationships slash marriage issues, 
Um, you know, I when I first became a chaplain, I had this like illusion uh, of what being a chaplain is like, and you wonder like. I think people are going to come to me with like all these like Islamic questions and how am I going to know which ones I'm qualified to answer, who I should refer them to or stuff. That like almost never happens. Like I I wish that happened sometimes. So they're they're not asking you about which madhab to join or which tariqah to follow? No, they're not asking me that. Although I will say, so I will say nobody ever comes and asks me a question like that, okay? Yes. Uh, But I will say that, I will say that having knowledge of those issues helps in other discussions. Because I say the greater underlying issue that a lot of people are facing beyond the specific issues they may be dealing with is this kind of, uh, you know, we had for a long time this fact that a lot of Muslims are kind of have split personalities, okay? Between their either their home life mm-hmm. and the masjid life, hopefully, if, if they're involved with the masjid, they're kind of in line with each other. And then the, like, school, public school friends. Society life, okay? at large. Society yeah. at large. So they have these two different, like, personalities. And... Um, they're struck now one thing that happened I think so you know in the 90s there was more like confrontational yeah. like choose the Islam side don't yeah. choose the then after that there was like almost the other extreme which was like oh there's no contradiction like you're American and you're Muslim and the more Muslim you are the more American you are the more American you are the more Muslim you are I like the kids I'm working with now I can tell they've been told this since they were like a little kid yeah they've been told like be proud to be American be proud to be Muslim all these things what I see though is that they haven't taken the time they're still not totally integrated though because they haven't taken the time to work out what that means like what is it very interesting what does it mean that I'm fully like a feminist and I'm fully Muslim and like because wh- someone from because usually people just like are happy for them to say that and they think it's so cool that they say that but they don't like challenge and push them on it yeah. and like if you challenge and push them on it you say like but this part of Islam like to most people this is contradictory to to this feminism or this part of Islam might be contradictory to what a lot of Americans believe or this or that how do you reconcile that and you find when you push kids like that, they get very uncomfortable and very, um, because they've never been taught and they've actually been taught it's bad to think about things like that. And I think it is, I think it's good to like think about things a little more. I'm, I, I don't want to be someone who, who's afraid of thought, who is afraid of like engaging issues. But I also realize that it's not always the right time for people to ask that question. Yeah. So a lot of times I ask myself, like, should I just be happy that they're saying that they're, hundred percent Muslim and they're saying that they're a hundred percent, you know, feminist or should I uh, push them on it with the danger that they may just decide, Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm not a hundred percent Muslim. Yeah. You know, I mean, just live in bliss. So, uh, you know, and I think like you said, humans, you have to look, you have to get the wisdom of where they're at. Yeah. And part of what I learned is being, you know, being, a. uh, from converting and kind of the way the 90s were there was a lot of craziness in the 90s but one of the things i loved about it was the um uh, especially in like the african-american muslim communities that i would be in which would be mainly converts especially here in the chicago there's there's different vibes in different places like uh different you know communities and established in different ways the people i was around 
What I loved about them is that they could be very hard and very firm and very passionate about certain beliefs. And a lot of them would be contradictory to each other in a way. People might look at them as contradictory. Like they'd have a random thing that was very like Sufi and a, rand, a lot of stuff that's very Salafi and a, a lot of stuff that's very like, like we said, a Khwani or from the nation of Islam. And they would all passionately believe all these things. And they just, to them, they were just natural and they fit together, which was very beautiful. And then, but then well, at some point, organizationally or leadership or intellectually wise, you have to start figuring out how you put these things together. And that's yeah. always, a, that's always an interesting thing. So that's what I love about the whole uh, chaplaincy. And, and the reason why I asked that question yeah. is because you also work in the inner city, which has been neglected very heavily, you know, um, as far as the Muslims are concerned, um, living in the suburbs, you know, we have a certain type of Islam in this inner city. There's a lack of resources and, you know, people really don't know what's happening. And the, uh, the, the types of issues that you're dealing with, they are completely different, I'm pretty sure, than what the college kid is going through when he comes to you as a Muslim chaplain, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, you know, some issues are human issues, but yes, that's, and that's something that I've really, you know, that was something part of the goal of Iman in the beginning. And, and still, I think one of the strengths of Iman is to bring Muslims from from other environments into the inner city, not just for a one day like service trip or yes. festival, but like to spend like repeated time in there and really get to understand the environment, really get to, because I think the more you can spend time understanding an environment different than the one you're in all the time, it will broaden your perspective and also really help you better understand the environment that you're in yeah. as well as the other environment, just to get that difference and that uh and that contrast, you know, this is what uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that we made you into different nations and tribes so that you could know one another. Yes. That it's through experiencing different things and different people that you get a better sense of yourself and other people. Yeah, and, and one thing I like to ask people that work in the inner city is that when you're mentoring somebody very heavily and, you know, they become Muslim and you actually have that, you're, you completely understand that bond that you have and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your witness, right? You're bonded through your aqidah. But... Have you ever had a situation where you're mentoring somebody and they become Muslim and now they become incarcerated? Right? Yeah, it, for sure. It's, yeah. It, you know, some people explain it like losing your child or something, mm-hmm. you know? Like, have you ever had to experience something like that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And a lot of times it's it's people who maybe have been incarcerated before and they're, you know, they found Islam and they're they're on on the right track, but then they fall back. And, you know... This is the reality of the situation is, alhamdulillah, as much the beautiful thing about working in the environment, you see some of the most inspiring examples you can see. You see people who have been through amazing experiences and they've totally transformed themselves. And this is what I say, like with Malcolm X, this is why his story is so inspiring. There is, you know, actually a beautiful example of uh, a person who, uh, I don't even know if I should refer to him personally, but like there's, there's beautiful examples of people I've known who have Islam has totally changed their life to the point where you wouldn't believe it's the same person when you see them, just the way they carry themselves. Even though when you think back, you realize there was those good things were in them. But Islam brings out those good things and, 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 and displays them in a beautiful way. So you see those most inspiring examples and you realize the strength and power of Iman, but you also realize the reality of the dunya when you see people who, no matter how inspired you are, if you don't have like if you don't have a job, if you're struggling with mental health issues, if you're struggling with family issues, if you don't have a place to live, those are real concerns that just your inspiration of Iman doesn't answer all those questions. Exactly. So we have to be able to as a community, as a society, we have to provide answers for this. I was at an event last night where we were having, 
you know, a prayer service and a conversation and trying to get people to address this, the violence that we're seeing. And really, this was a point that was made. People like Father Flager are there that really like you need, we need to address economically. We need to give people opportunities. We need to be, and this is what I found through my work with Iman, through my work with uh, kids in the foster care system. I stay in touch with several of the kids I work through the foster care system, some of whom are Muslim. And they're just, uh, it's just like you can't, you try to, you see the inspiration and sincerity in them, but you see that the bar- the, the obstacles that they're facing are just beyond your imagination. Yeah. That they wake up every day and they have to figure out how to eat, how to get food, wow. where to sleep that night. I mean, you, you those are real things that make you, humble you and make you a little silent about like just the pep talks about Islam. Like you, you want to give them a relationship with Allah and an Iman that can strengthen them, but you don't want to be like someone lecturing them or telling them like, you know, uh, you know, it just puts everything in perspective. And so I think I, I, I got a profound from, you know, going back to those early debates we used to have about like, is, is it when we're doing dawah, is it more important to like just teach the truth and give people the huck or is it important to like help them and these kind of things? Of course, both are important, but you realize what a service you're doing and how, how much of a, how much of a, a difference you're making in people's iman, in allowing people to even practice the deen when you answer this, the, the, the practical problems of their lives. So it gave me so much respect. This is part of the beauty of Islam, of everyone having a role. It gave me so much respect for the person who may not give lectures, who may not be our idea of who Muslim is, but if they can if they can provide like a business that provides jobs for people or if they can provide yeah. uh, another way of supporting people, this is almost more valuable than than any lectures you can give. And, and I think people undermine what Muhammad did before, I mean, 40 years. Why was he known as somebody as trustworthy and help people and help the weak? And it's all of that trust that he built with the individuals. So now, after 40 years of doing all of that social work, after doing all of that uh, uh, trust building, after doing all that genuine, it's not like he had a hidden agenda. He didn't know he was going to be a prophet. And that's what people knew him for. So when he did all of that work in that social atmosphere he was living in, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals you know, verses mm-hmm. to him. And I think we have to really not undermine that because um, change doesn't just come with lecturing people. I agree with you 100%. People want to see you there when they're in need and they won't even ask what you're doing. They'll trust you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the other things, the main objectives of the sharia, uh, you know, is that if somebody, for instance their wealth is not protected, their aql, their mind is not protected, their religion is not protected. If you tell them to pray, it's not going to make sense to them because they have to go home to kids, their children being hungry. Their children's stomachs are growling and you're telling them that you want to, you know, convincing them to do something religious. They can't even think on that, you know, on that wavelength yet. Yeah, and Abdul Malik, you mentioned a couple of times your reference to working in a foster care system. Now, you went to DePaul, you ended up at Georgetown, which is one of the top law schools in the country, mashallah. And there had to have been a time, a point in time at Georgetown where you probably saw your classmates going to the corporate law. Law school is expensive, right? And you decided not to go for that corporate law and, you know, that whole partner and make a lot of bank, which you could have done. You, you know, you, you were married probably around this time as well. So, and then how how did you have that clarity to get in that foster care system and, and do work for these kids? And what kind of advice do you have because a lot of guys will go into these like prestigious MBA programs for nonprofit or law school, but then 
they will get tempted by the investment banks or the corporate law firms and them you know they see that huge salary and they jump to that rather than what their values are so talk to our listeners a little bit about that what went through your mind yeah and that's a very you know important topic and some obviously i have to deal with dealing with students and and people who are deciding what they're going to do and what career they're going to pursue and what i notice is that you know i think if people if people wanted to like if uh, in sum, inshallah of course assuming it's halal which is another discussion but if people want to do jobs that are high paying and like i said that's a beautiful thing and like anyone who's worked in the nonprofit world you like you learn to like appreciate those people <laughs> and realize like we need more of those people like yeah. we need more people that's the beauty of working in that field you need, you realize how much you need them right but yeah <laughs> definitely yeah because a lot of us who go into it and this goes into kind of my story of going to it a lot of us who go into those fields Yes, we do it out of our burning because that's where our passion is. Our passion is to help people. Our passion is to make a difference. Personally, I couldn't imagine. And I don't, I don't say this to like compliment myself. I wish it was a compliment to myself, but it's just a reality. To me, honestly, money is not important enough to me to make me like slave away in a law firm, you know, at 16 hours a day doing something I don't believe in. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the rewards I get from helping kids, that's enough to make me put in, you know, And we're still not hours. saying you're not balling. We're pretty sure you're balling out of control, mashallah. We're not saying that. <laughs> I don't know about that, but alhamdulillah. Yeah, so, so definitely. But you're right. So I want to separate out the people who have that passionate desire to go into things that, that alhamdulillah do pay money and they use it for good things. That's a beautiful thing. But you're right. There's another segment of people, like a lot of people would go into law school and they would say that I want to do this to help the Muslims. Like I'm going to law school to help the Muslims or I'm doing, going to make change society. And then you'll find them in these jobs that are not really helping society. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're basically, you know, when you're making a lot of money, one reality that you do have to know is that mostly it's because people who have a lot of money are paying you to do what you're doing, meaning you're helping people who have a lot of money. So you're, uh, so that's, mm. inshallah, it's halal, but, it, you know, you have to look at each situation individually yes. and inshallah use that risk for the best things. But um, there's a people who, like you said, you mentioned the cost and loans, and I know that's on a lot of people's minds, and um, you get caught or you get trapped in a lifestyle, like... You know, you start living in a certain place and, certain, and you need to keep making that much money and you need to keep doing this and that. And you're almost trapped in something and you have to really take a hard look at yourself, whether that's what you want or don't want. But I think for me personally, it was it was like I, that was never something really on my radar screen um, in the sense that I didn't, you know, not saying there weren't moments when you say like, oh, if I did have more money, I could do this and this and this and this. And you and you think about it. But and and then you uh, you know always like the, the 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 temptation is like oh you could just do it for a few years and do this and that <laughs> but like I said usually it, so you have to decide what's important to you and uh, do you, do you think it's an issue that we have in our community where the work that we do towards a religion needs to be focused around money or you're you're making in, an income out of the work that that you're doing for the religion you're saying uh, that- yeah well for example uh, a lot of people about our podcast they're saying oh when are you guys gonna start advertising and you know start making money and uh i just kind of smile and laugh at them I'm like this isn't about money we don't care about money go i told our, our hosts over here if you're in it for the money go get a job <laughs> this ain't about the money you work 40 hours and you you come and you spend some time and do it for the sake of Allah, you know? Uh, yeah. Do you think we have a problem like that in our community? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying there is, but I'm just kind of wondering. 
just meeting all these different people. When you, when you start this podcast up, you start to talk to a lot of different people and you see that how many people have made a career out of, you know, out of Islam and, you know, using Islam to, uh, as a career. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? I think there's like two ways to look at that question. So I think whenever, if you have people that are doing anything that is, that's related towards the deen or related towards, for the sake of Allah, but they, they think in their mind that this could be a way to make money. That's a problematic way to go into it. Um, I think if we look back at the Prophet ﷺ and his companions, especially, you know, and I was reflecting upon this yesterday, especially the early companions, obviously. The early companions, uh, they, the Prophet ﷺ was always clear with them that, like, this, what I'm offering you in return for what you're doing is Jannah. Like, this is what you're working. And so if you have people who come into it because that's what they're working towards, the, what happens in this world will never affect them. Like the hardships or the lack of response or this or that, it will never affect them because they, their eye is on the prize that which is in Jannah and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those type of people are the people you need to really do things. At the same time, those were a minority of the people. The people who came once Islam was established, then the Prophet ﷺ would give the later people he would give them some wealth and he would tell the people who are in power, like, accept Islam and you can keep your wealth and stuff like that. So he understood that most people need, people need like practical things of this life. Like a lot of, you're not going to get the average person like you were talking about before, about the idealism that we sometimes have, that we're not all going to be saints, we're not all going to be the highest level. Like some people need that, they have that concern. It may come from their life circumstances, it may come from other things. Um you know, alhamdulillah, I think in some ways it's because I'm blessed to grow up in the United States in a family that wasn't rich at all, but was like comfortable. And uh, I I wasn't worried about like, am I going to be able to support my family? Like I felt it will work out. Like I just have a feeling like it will work out. I'll do yeah. something. Other people may have come and immigrated here specifically for financial reasons, have stressed to their kids from a young age that you have to get this degree. It's that white conference you have. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Sheikh Amr about it. <laughs> Me and Sheikh Amr before he came, we were like, you know, a lot of people in our Indian Pakistani community, they go to law school. They'll stick to law school. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many of them will will go to become a chaplain. Yeah, it's, uh, no, it's a be- it is it's a good th- it is a good thing because I think it allows you to do so many good things. Yeah, and we should look at the societal reasons why people have it or don't yeah. have it. Yeah. it will be interesting to see like your guys' generation, like your children, what values they grow up with and how they look at things. Because obviously the immigrant generation or the kids who are first generation grown up here, but affected by parents who grew other places, like they have a different way of looking at the world and this society and what it's about and education and career yeah. and all those things. So that's going to be a fascinating thing in the Muslim community. So the, just to finish the thought about the two ways. Um, so what I think as a Muslim community, we, I think as an individual, if I'm ever doing something that's for the sake of Allah, but I'm thinking, Oh, it could get me this or this in the dunya. I know that that's a very dangerous sign. And I hope I don't think that way. Or if I see other people think that way, I know to be a little cautious of it, but as a community, like we say, like if someone's saying like, I want to be an imam because, you know, I heard imams make a lot of money. Like obviously one, they're misinformed, right? <laughs> but maybe they're, maybe they're thinking of like the five imams in the country that might have a good deal set up. But second of all, so you know that it's, that that's a problem for that person. But as a community, we actually do need, 
we actually do need to have money associated with these kind of positions. We need yeah. we need full time job people. We yeah. need people doing it as their job, not yeah. just volunteering. Because and we need young people who are talented to want to pursue these things. And again, it shouldn't be about the money, but like this is I know this is a concept they always had when it comes to rabbis in the Jewish community, is that you're not paying them to be a rabbi, but you're paying them so they don't have to do anything else. Exactly. So they don't Undivided have to spend attention, their time. Yeah. yeah. No, I and I brought it up just because it, it's it was a issue with me when I was kind of figuring things out and I, I remember when all these institutes were popping up across the country, Al Maghrib and Zaytuna and all these guys. They were money-making institutions but and it was difficult for me to understand like what you would make money off the religion what's wrong with you you know yeah and uh but now i after some maturity and kind of thinking about it you know yeah there are people who need to be working 24 7 and they need to be taken care of too they, there needs to be some sort of business model for it and, and actually in addition to that i do want to mention quickly because this is something i've really learned being a chaplain which I kind of knew was out there before I did it, but I didn't really grapple with it as much as I maybe should have, is uh, being now being a Muslim chaplain, which is a little it's a little different in my mind because it's paid by the university, so it's not coming out of like the Muslim community. Yeah. Indirectly, it is. I mean, Muslims are part of the people paying tuition and stuff, yeah. but to, and I'm serving the Muslim community, but it's not directly like I don't have to fundraise and it's not directly coming out of the Muslim. But I think that. Um, the whole idea of like being a professional Muslim as someone who spent, you know, I spent the first, you know, 20, uh, almost 20 years, first 18 years or whatever as a Muslim, like being very active and like volunteering with everything and everything I did with Iman and every, it was all like volunteer. And I had another job. That's, that was the source of my job. And even after that job, I would come to DePaul and do the chaplaincy thing and all that kind of thing. And there is a huge advantage in that, both in your sincerity and in your, um, not being afraid, like once your Islam, your Islamic work is tied to your like risk uh, in your mind, that can be spiritually dangerous because then you're like, you know, when I was working as a lawyer, like I was like, whatever I say as the chaplain, if they fire me as a chaplain, that does, that's okay. That doesn't matter. Now, if they were to say like, look, what if you say this, like DePaul will fire you as a chaplain, <laughs> that could be a problem. Like I'd have to think about that. Like yeah. I have a family, I have to, I have to support them. So, but just spiritually, like, Get knowing that getting up every day and knowing that, oh, am I going even when I'm trying to inspire the youth and the students and I'm like, come on, guys, why don't you come to this holocaust? Why don't you come do this service? Why don't you do this and that? Then I'm re then I have to step back and realize, hey, wait, like I'm, I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> I'm asking them to do it volunteer, but I'm getting a paycheck for yeah. it. Of course, there's like a, a there's like a, a, a break there. It's not as pure as like when I was just doing as a volunteer and asking other people to do as a volunteer with me. So spiritually, I think, and I, I, it's something I like to talk to other imams and other people who are teachers or whatever in this in the Muslim community about how they deal with that spiritually. Uh, being when you become like like I said a professional Muslim and your job is like being a Muslim, that definitely has to be something that you have to wrestle with in terms of in terms of your sincerity and towards. Allah. Oh, I I had a burning question for you um being uh a chaplain at a university and now we have this whole social justice movement that's going on how how much does that weigh you down or weigh down on you yeah. uh, based on everything you say because there's a lot of small things that can be taken out of, taken out of context in islam right a, a tiny snippet of, of a lecture can be i, I remember uh who was dr hatma al-hajj who was uh, working for the Mayo Clinic and his, uh, some statements got taken out of context and he 
ended up uh, getting fired because of these social justice movements. Mm-hmm. They ended up, you know, contacting his job and he ended up losing his job. So it's a very real threat that mm-hmm. that's out there. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I was just laughing because I'm thinking about whether anything I say here will be like <laughs> used against me as much. You I'm can you can before. definitely have a disclaimer. <laughs> we can do a disclaimer for you. And, you know, <laughs> we had people do that before. No, but it's it is. But like you said, like originally, I mean, the main way I look at it actually is that it's these movements are very exciting. Like the main reason I look at it is like going back to like the nineties, like my vision of what being a college student is and being a Muslim is like, should be more active, like get these kids more active, like do something like, and we're always kind of joking because we're employed by the university and like, they want us to do certain things. But (laughs) I'm, I look, when I was at the university at DePaul, like we, we had a, a, first of all, the, the, the DePaulia, the student newspaper, um, I guess this is like a public thing that happened so I can go like it, it, they ran something, uh, that the students objected to, um, the African-American students specifically. And I remember this cause this was a very important like moment for me spiritually, actually. Um, they objected to the newspaper and it was like a series of long complaints as these things often are. It wasn't just this one incident, the one incident you may say, Oh, I can see it this way or that way. But to them, it was a series of a long pattern that showed that the university didn't appreciate them or understand them and wasn't responding to their concerns. So the university published something that they thought was really out of line in the front cover of the newspaper. They decided to take, this is back like pre-internet days. Like, so the, the papers were physical papers lying out around campus. They decided to gather all the newspapers from around campus and go to this pit that was in the middle of the student center building and tear up all of them, destroy all of them. And, I was like coming and walking by, see this starting to happen. They're gathering the papers. I know some of them, you know, this, I'm into the Malcolm X thing and stuff like that. And I'm, and I just have to make a decision. Like, are you going to join them or not? Mm-hmm. And the fact that I did, I mean, alhamdulillah, I'm so, it's, it's, I'm so happy and proud that I did join them and do that, even though I could debate whether that was the best thing to do or not. But to me in that moment, what was more important, more important was saying like, you're a young person, you're talking about all these things. Are you really, whose side are you really on? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to decide. So I think that being on their side, that I, I eventually led to a sit-in in which we took over the newspaper. And the fact that people like myself, people like Rami Nashashibi got very involved in it and was one of the leaders of the movement, that did so much for the image of the Muslim community on campus and really the, the reality of that the Muslims were with this effort and we're with this strive for justice and we're not just talking, but we're backing it up. So I think that it's beautiful to have this students concerned about justice and we desperately need Muslims to be part of it. Now, Muslims should bring something unique to it and we shouldn't just follow along what everyone else is doing. So we should, because, so we should, but that's a tough thing and that's something we have to keep working on. And that's actually something also I spend a lot of time with students on because a lot of students are involved in activism around Israel-Palestine, activism around Black Lives Matter, other things. And some of the ones who talk to me are the ones who are more spiritually inclined. They're also praying and stuff and they'll come to me and, and work. We'll talk through like how does this relate to our dean. Like people are constantly trying to get us to like – talk things out and come through it is that what islam wants us to do they'll see the activist crew who might be favoring certain ideas that they don't agree with or they know islam doesn't agree with and so what how do we reconcile that and i think these are all important discussions so i i actually it is it is a source of some anxiety for me personally like because i know i I try to let people know my beliefs as a muslim 
some of my beliefs as a Muslim. In some ways, I'm very much in line with a lot of my colleagues and people on there. Some of my beliefs as a Muslim are very strange in a college environment. <laughs> okay? Is I mean, it's just the reality that... And, you know, there is a certain anxiety that do these people really know that, like, what I believe and stuff? And up till now, this goes back to people, like, integrating their identity and stuff. Up till now, I think the Muslims kind of get a pass with a lot of people, the liberal people, under the kind of uh, multicultural environment. So they're kind of like... Oh, you know, these Muslim women wear hijab because that's just their culture. And, you know, we, we accept all cultures, so we should accept them. But the challenge that's going to, that's already coming to some extent and will come in the future is when some Muslim women start saying, no, actually we don't, we don't wear hijab and we don't believe in hijab. And it's, it's actually a negative thing in our culture. And they'll get some allies to say like, no, we should, we should stand up against this. And, then you have to really stand up for what you believe in. And that's why some of what we were talking about, like the whole the whole way of just translating everything. So just saying that what we do as Muslims is all because of these principles, like these liberal progressive principles. Yeah. It, it can be a problem because sometimes you have to choose, like, which is it? You can yeah. say it's consistent, but at the end of the day, you have to choose which one you're doing it for. Uh, and, no, yeah, sorry. Please, no, no, no. Speaking of liberalism, um, I know that you're uh, uh, preparing uh, or you have prepared some work on liberalism, which I think you're going to uh, be presenting at the Ilm Summit, uh, uh, right? Um, and it, it, can you shed a little light on that? Because we talked about liberals and liberalism uh, directly or indirectly pretty heavily today. Um, and, you know, so if you, yeah, if you can just shed a little. Yeah. So, yeah. And so we did, like, we presented that, alhamdulillah, Yasser Qadi, people may know the the most recent Al-Maghrib class that he taught was dealing with some of these topics. And um, he had a group of students present on different topics to the Ilm Summit. And, mm-hmm. and he kind of incorporated some of that into his notes. And alhamdulillah, uh, Sheikh Yasser is really at the forefront of kind of addressing these issues. I also, like anybody else, like I consider Sheikh Yasser to be probably like, one of the most influential of my teachers upon me, but at the same time, every time we meet, I like usually argue with him most of the time. So <laughs> real quick, Abu Malik, could yeah. you give people a real thirty second overview of what that class is about so they have some context? Yeah, so the class is about um, what is the class about? The class is about <laughs> no. It's called no doubt. So it's about it's about this whole idea of kind of the issue, the most relevant issues that Muslims are facing today in our American context, and many of them are this kind of. Uh, uh, so, you know, Sheikh Yasser's whole thing now is kind of, and this is where I kind of agree with him and disagree with him, is kind of like getting away. But a lot of it, and this one thing you learn from this whole thing, and when I always remind myself when I'm talking to Sheikh Yasser or when I'm talking to a young student or whoever I'm talking to, and this goes to realizing that people have their own life stories and whatever, is that everything is affected by where you're coming from. So I constantly remind myself when I'm talking to my students, they're coming from the environment of people who grew up in a Muslim community who had this problem or that problem that we've talked about. And that's where they get their beliefs. I'm coming from someone who grew up in a liberal American household and decided to convert to Islam. And so the way I look at things is different than the way they look at things. They may look from the perspective of these are problems that we have in our community that may have some helpful solutions from this other perspective. Uh, I look at it from like these are these were the problems in like liberalism that I thought Islam corrected. So yeah. we we have different ways of looking at things. But the um, the point of the class is that instead of addressing issues like theological issues that were debated in the past and like in, 
teaching them to ourselves so that we can then debate them amongst each other, Very true, yeah. that we should in, instead look to what are the real issues occupying people today, and we should teach those. Those are the theological issues that we should focus on. So what does Islam have to say about you know, feminism? What does Islam have to say about liberalism and democracy and nationalism and all these kind of issues? And did you watch that, that, that clip of uh, Sheikh Yasser Qadri that was on uh, when he was at Amja and he uh, basically was talking about the same exact, the same exact issue, right? Uh, there yeah. were certain things that we have talked about that are high, high priority, not theological debates that was actually meant for the elites. That's how I see it. Those theological debates were meant for the elites of the ummah that were there to kind of defend and ward off some threats, ideological threats that were there, that were seeping into Al-Qaeda, basically, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important things to realize exactly what you said there, is that sometimes people say, oh, Ibn Taymiyyah, Rahimullah, or uh, Imam Ahmed, or whoever, they talked about issues that were uh, important at their time. Yeah. But even I think it's what important to remember exactly what you said. Even if at their time, I wouldn't assume that the average person on the street was talking about the issues they, they were weren't. talking about. They were not at all. The average person on the street, especially at that time, could not read or write. They're, they're, the, the books were not written for the average person they're in not. no way. They're so, coded. They're yeah. coded in language, in a certain language. They're very, very so, tough language. Yeah. yeah. So so it's not even a matter of saying like they... So that goes both ways, though. So that shows, one, that these issues are not meant for the average person to just discuss, but also shows that... It's okay to write about issues that are not for the average person. It's okay to write for the for people who are into these topics and stuff like that. So I would say, you know, and we go back and forth about which issues of theology are important or not important. I think that will depend on the person and the situation. But I will say that no no one doubts that the certain issues that are pressing on people, like I'm saying, this is what I like to be a chaplain. These are what the issues are there. Um, the only thing I will say, though, is that... To some extent, I think knowing the history, I think Muslims are very, uh, unfortunately, we're very at a disadvantage uh, because we don't know a lot of other things. So, um, you know, when we do interfaith discussions, usually the people, now this is not always the case. When you're having interfaith discussions among like common lay people, the average, because we live in a society that's mainly Christian, your average Muslim might know a little more about Christianity than the average Christian knows about Islam. Okay. And just in the street. Um, because, you know, we're in a majority Christian society, so some of it will seep into us, whereas they're not, you know, they may know nothing about Islam. But when we're talking on the academic level, when we have interfaith discussions on like a more academic level, the people who are talking from other perspectives know a lot more about Islam than we know about their perspectives. Yeah. Usually the Muslim representatives in these discussions know very little. Even like you have high-level interfaith debates where the Muslim representatives know very little about Christianity. I mean, they know what they know is from the perspective of what Muslims have said about yeah. it. They've never like studied it. Word them. on the street. They know <laughs> so, word on the street. <laughs> so it's just like if we were to say that someone only knew Islam from like what uh, Christians said about it, yeah. we would know that they didn't really know Islam. Yeah, yeah. So we have to get to the level where we can understand these ideas better in order to counter them. And so I think that's that's a future that's where we're going towards that people have to take these ideas seriously in order to begin to think about how we can address them. Because the first thing that you'll see, and I noticed this when we would have some interfaith discussions, is that, uh, and we can get into, you know, I know we're going long already, but no, 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 we'll get okay. into. That was but there, there's, there's still one more thing we have to talk about, but you can. <laughs> we got a couple more things. But I'm just, what I wanted to say is that. The, my overall kind of perspective on things, which goes back to this whole like liberalism, what we have to do, is that, of course, everyone is different. But most people 
uh, are not most people, the way they look at the world and does not change based on argument. Yeah. Um, it changes based on powerful, like emotional experiences. Yeah. And sometimes we critique this and it's okay to critique it because you can say, irrationally, it doesn't make sense that just because so-and-so person abused you and that person was a Muslim, like Quran teacher. Now you turn against Islam. Like that was just his person. Like you should, that's not the fault of the Quran. That makes sense logically, but yeah. that's not an argument to a person who had that experience. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense on paper, not to that individual. <laughs> not to yeah. an individual. Well, it's, it's a, a commentary on, just uh, this country's attitude towards religion, too, in general, yeah, yeah. and uh, how what a mistrust that a lot of people in, yeah. in the West have so towards religion. So that's out there, and we have to understand that. But I would say, as much as we can critique it, like one thing is just real, it's the way people think, so we have to uh, acknowledge it. And the other thing is that it's okay, like we talked about before, about like ayat from Allah. Like Allah works through, I believe Allah works through ayat which is not the same thing as saying Allah works through logic or something like that. Yes, of course. So this is one of the reasons of what I don't think, like I don't think the way that you convince someone of Islam or the way that you convince someone of a particular position when, within Islam is through logical discussion. It's through, uh, it's, uh, it's through ayat. Like how you, how we become a Muslim is not through giving someone a pamphlet or explaining to them this or that. Again, maybe for some people it is like there's like, humans are amazingly diverse yes. yeah. and like everyone could have a story that is like that. So those people who are doing that, maybe they're seeing results and may Allah strengthen them in I that. Mean. What I see from my own life and therefore that's what I work on is that amazing. I had like you see a person that is just something about that person is so amazing and so beautiful that it like catches your attention and changes the way you look at the world. Yeah. And you just like, have a longing and attraction to that person. And you're just like, I want to be whatever that person is. That's what happened to me, both through Malcolm X and through other individual people that I saw when I was becoming Muslim. I'm just like, wow, I've never seen a person that acts like that, that carries themselves like that, that looks like that, that, wa- that you know does things like that, cares about people like that, prays to Allah like that. I want to be like that. What is that person? Oh, that person's a Muslim. I want to be a Muslim too. So this is like, this is how... Allah works in the world through these ayat. And the beautiful thing about these ayat, as some of these spiritual teachers say, is that like um, when you see this kind of s- sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's something, you know, we have this thing where like th- th- some of these people say like there's a process of being born and dying. There's a process of waking up and going to sleep. There's things in life, and Allah says, you know, the signs and the alternation of the night and the day. There's... There is a situation where some things in life like wake you up and make you energize and want to know more. Yeah. Some things in life, they make you just surrender and submit. Like they're yeah. so awe-inspiring. They're just like, I, sub- I surrender to the one who made this. Yes. I surrender to the ones in control. The thing about what we say is in beauty or what we say are in ayat from Allah is that they make you do both things at once. They wake you up and inspire you and want you to do things, but at the same time, they make you be in submission to the one who created that, mm-hmm. as long as you're connecting with that sign with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So those, so we need to try to, and we need to try to be, connect people with the ayat of Allah, and really at some level, like create situations so that people can be ayat of Allah, be signs of Allah. That's what we should do rather than arguing about anything. So even on issues that I think are really important, I don't think, and this is where I disagree with some people, and may, again, may Allah reward their work, and I think their work is important. People think we need to push, p- create more and more work about like philosophy or this or LGBT issues or this and that. 
I don't think that's really what's going to solve the problem. I think the problem is different than that. The only the good thing about those things is that you'll see this if you think back at like the back in the day when Dawa was like Ahmadidat and Zakarnaik style yeah. Dawa. Okay, did you think there's a lot of people who listened to that were Christians and said, "Oh, I want to be a Muslim"? No. No, I don't think so. I would love to hear a story of someone who did that, but I I don't know any. So, but what did it do? Does that say there's no value in it? No. What was the value in it? The value in it is that it strengthened the faith of some Muslims. Yes. It strengthened the faith of a lot of Muslims. And gave them confidence. My parents' generation, I saw it because they, when my parents' generation came, they felt very inferior and everything. But once Ahmadidat came into the scene, like, whoa, we got all this. Well, forget that. We don't have to be ashamed anymore. Yeah. So I thought that everything happens for a reason. You can't undermine anything that Allah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ordained somebody to be influential in a certain way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did that for a reason yeah. and it's all step by step like I always tell us to our, our friends and our buddies our parents had no idea that they were carrying the torch or the flag of Islam uh, to the United States and they had no idea it was going to flourish like this Yeah, they yeah. just thought they were coming for economic and that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted from them that you know what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to make an ayah. This is what you're talking about. And just for our listeners, when he's saying ayah, he means the signs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is constantly giving us signs. We just have to look after them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordained that there's going to be individuals that come. And they, a lot of them didn't even had, didn't have a concern about Islam spreading. They just wanted a better life. And in that, there's a sign because from that next generation, my parents' generation, they say, we had no idea Islam was going to be like this. And we don't know anybody as religious as these kids back home. You know, and that's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works in amazing ways. And that's how, you know, uh, that's how, uh, you know, his signs prevail, yeah. you know. It's amazing. So there is a value, and I learned this from Interfaith Order. When you show the Muslims that you know what you're talking about, that's important. Yeah. Because we need intellectual confidence. Because oftentimes the reality is we don't know what we're talking about. And some people can fake like they know what they're talking about. And that can give some people confidence. But we know beyond that with Allah, we want to have real intellectual confidence that we understand these issues that we can talk about them and that will help that will help people that will help firm up people so there is definitely a role for it but so so there, everything is important but yeah. but right don't get lost on Ab- that. abdul malik uh there's a couple of things that we still want to cover with you um and alhamdulillah we were you know we got a lot of great content here <laughs> one of the things that people when they see you in the community everyone will say you know i'll see this brother at any event Regards the ideology, so it could be a Zaytun Institute fundraiser, Al Maghrib seminar, uh, Sheikh Amr mentioned Ilm Summit, Darul Hikma retreat. We've seen you everywhere, but then you consider yourself we call a romantic Salafi. Yeah, I want to know about this term. Where does romantic Salafi think? So from? first, can you like explain to our listeners what like what what in your view what does it mean to be a Salafi, and then what a romantic Salafi is? <laughs> yeah, so the question is, am I more of a romantic or more of a Salafi? No, um, it's, alhamdulillah, that, that, that's a good topic. So some of it I've tried to describe so far. And I, sometimes I tell people, like, you want to know what a romantic Salafi is? That's what I am. Like, that's who I am. Because I don't Are think you the I, only one? I don't think I have any followers yet. I'm always talking to my students at DePaul, like, who wants to be the first follower of the <laughs> romantic Salafi movement? I don't know if anybody's following it yet. But the... Um, so the point is, and this does relate to the, to attending all the events. And like I said, some of it comes out of the beautiful, the beautiful experience that I had. Like I said, with early Muslim community, where you'd have all kinds of people who passionately believe things that might seem a little contradictory if you had a, another background or another knowledge. But alhamdulillah, to them it wasn't because to them that's just how they came into things, and that's how you know. I think that's how my experience as Muslim as a Muslim is. Like, like I said, Sheikh Yasser Qadi, like is. 
is I consider to be like one of my main teachers doesn't mean I don't disagree with him about things. So to me, it was never a reason because I didn't agree with everything someone was saying to to like not go support what they're doing or be part of what they're doing. Like I know all of these places have so much I can learn, so much knowledge I can learn and so much of uh, important to be around the Muslim community like that. And it's important that we have that uh, those spaces that we can learn. And so I always, and you never know, like you hear about problems in the community or you see problems in the community. And my question always is like, you know, the people who are causing problems for the most part are not the scholars and the teachers. Sure, It's like, it's like the young people, the followers. Okay. But my question is always, what, what are these scholars telling these young people about what, what's going on? Like what, what are they doing that gives them the impression that no, you should never go to an Al Maghrib class, or no, you should never go to, uh, you should never go to a Talif event, or something like that. Like who who gave them that impression? Like they must have learned from someone that that was the way they should think. Everyone has their natural thing that they might fit into, but I'm saying like there's good things to admire in all these things. Like I blame I, the UK Salafis. That's what I say. <laughs> Naturally, so that's why Ali Tamimi gave them advice <laughs> 20 years ago. So we. <laughs> <laughs> we will say, mashallah, I love Sheikh Ali Tamim. May Allah free him from prison uh, and preserve his health. But we, uh, we, we know that some people, and people may have their opinion about what we should say from what we should avoid. But I will say the whole Salafi. So Salafi, like I said, I think part of my re- relationship with the Salafi movement is affected by the fact that I was, you know, was in D.C. for a couple of years, but mainly I've been in Chicago. And the Salafi movement in Chicago uh, was never very like large, okay? In that sense, I think it's very influential. Like it's influential all over America. I think you can you can see the influence of it in everyone, and that's what I like to kind of point out to people that they don't necessarily see. But the hardcore, like, call yourself a Salafi movement, was not as strong here in Chicago. So uh, it 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 didn't have that. But what? But so sometimes it could be. So a lot of times people talk to me like how the Salafis are. And I may have a few experiences of that, but for the most part, that's not what I think of when I think of the Salafi movement. But that's actually one of the ways where I say like romantic Salafi. It means like I'm a Salafi in the sense that I believe in, uh, I have a certain perspective. I'm not necessarily, I don't believe strictly you should follow one method. I also don't strictly, like in terms of theological issues, it makes a lot more sense to me kind of the kind of more Imam Ahmed Athari approach to theological issues. It makes a lot more sense to me. I'll never forget, mashallah, I love these guys so much, and it could be just my lack of knowledge, but, uh, you know, you go into, like, an Ashari Akida class, and it seems like they're almost, like, teaching you, like, they're starting with this philosophical principle of this or that. That doesn't appeal to me. Like, um, to me, it's like, that's not what I see in the Qur'an. That's not what I see. The, again, I see this principle, what I've tried to talk about, of Allah using ayat yeah, to impress the, upon the people through, like, so. direct, yeah. So... Again, I really, I know we're not, I'm not trying to get into debate with anybody. And like I said, that's why I say when I say, I say like, you know, uh, when I'm at DePaul, I say like, you know, I'm the only Salafi here. Like all of my students are Sufis and like <laughs> nobody is like, you know, I, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not, I'm not even really, of course I'm trying to influence people in good ways, but I'm not trying to make people think like me, but I'm being honest about how I think. So that, so part of romantic Salafi means I'm a Salafi for the reasons I just described, but not in the way, whatever bad thing you say, Salafis are like this. I'm not like that because I'm a romantic Salafi. We're not like that. So, so that's what you mean by romantic Salafi. That's, was a, confused, that's a big man. part of it. But I will say that some of what you see, but you not just see in Salafis, like I more associated with like this Ashari way of thinking. 
but um, some people associate with Salafis, which is this kind of robotic, like if I just explain to you, like logically, kind of this like Dr. Spock way of thinking, like if I just look at this text and this evidence, like you should do this. And if we should, if we should not be around people who are like spreading falsehood, then we should not be around these people. And if these people don't say that these people are false, like it can all make logical sense to you. But then I'm like, but if you're a human being, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like if you're just naturally a human being, like being harsh to people and being as a way of getting them closer to God or this, it just naturally doesn't make sense if you're a human being. So that's a romantic Salafi is someone who's a human being enough that they realize that life is not about these logical conclusions. Life is about understanding. And that is what Salafism, even if you look at like the controversies on the attributes of God and stuff like that's a very romantic like way of viewing things and a very romantic way of viewing the world. And I believe that's why the Sahaba viewed this this way of viewing the world through ayat of God rather than through logical arguments. I think that this is this is I think um, th- what Islam is, and this is what I associate with romantic Salafism. So, what are your thoughts on? <laughs> like, we lost half our audience. <laughs> they have no idea what we're talking about anymore. I've, I've actually heard, like, for example, like the the ilmul, the other Sunni schools that are have some Greek philosophy, the Ashadis, the Maturidis, the Ilmul Kalam schools are better equipped to combat the theology of atheism in today's day and age. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> See this, and this goes back to what I was just saying before. I just I don't believe that the way you combat atheism is through argument. First of all, if you want to have arguments, like I said, it may it may it may make some people more confident. But I honestly don't believe. Like, alhamdulillah, Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda, we had this class, and it's only on the top of my mind because I was studying for the exam, which I'm supposed to take today. Uh, oh, was that today? The exam. Oh, I got today. it too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but. He started off with this survey that they did at Ann Arbor, I guess. Sorry to mention Ann Arbor for you, Mahim. But for Allah. <laughs> but, Those of you who don't know, I'm fully decked out in Ohio State gear. <laughs> but the survey that they did of, of people who left Islam and they describe why. And I think a lot of them will give reasons like this didn't make sense or that didn't make sense. So people will say like, oh, so if we just show them how it makes sense, maybe that will keep them in Islam. And that could work for some people. But beyond the specific reasons that they gave... They said with all of the people, there was an underlying sense of it was a very emotional decision to leave Islam. And it happened because someone hurt them who was a Muslim. Exactly. Basically. I mean, that's what that's why people do things. And then people come up with reasons. And I'm very open and honest. That's the way I tell my story. Even the way people convert to Islam. Because someone who was Muslim attracted them to it. And then later on, you can come up with, oh, the Trinity never made sense to me. And that may be true. The Trinity did never make sense to me. <laughs> like I said, my mom never pushed the Trinity or anything. But I think that that wasn't the reason why I became Muslim. Like that's mm. not, those are those arguments and understandings come later when we study things. So no. I, I don't, I think to make it about the argument, I think is missing the most important thing. And I don't think... To me, those arguments do not make sense. To me, like it's like someone who said, and this is actually a Catholic person I was sitting with and talking about this. He mentioned, he mentioned this. He's like, the problem with rational arguments for the existence of God is not that you can't rationally prove that God exists. He said you can prove God rationally prove God exists, just as you can also rationally prove God does not exist. These kind of logical arguments they can be used by a skillful person either way, and I think. That is one thing that I attribute to learning actually partially from being a lawyer where you're taught you should taught that you should be able to represent either side of the case. And I see this on many issues inside Islam and outside Islam. 
that I can make an argument for either side of this case. What I choose to believe is for a deeper reason. And that's why I think sincerity and tarbiyah and tazkiyah is so important to understand that you're sincerely arriving at what you think is true. Because once you decide what you want to believe or what you do believe or what you know to be true, then the arguments you make for it, you can come up with arguments for it on either side. So I don't... It could be a source. I'm always open to learning. This is a beautiful example we learned from Malcolm X. He he believes some things very strongly that he then changed his mind about. I'm always open to maybe that my understanding of some of these other theologies is not as great as it should be. And I, that's why I still associate with these people and try to learn, you know, from all these teachers what they're teaching. But in my experience, it is not, to answer directly your question, it is not these arguments. You can make arguments on either side. Sure. It's not these arguments that will that will convince people. Abdul Malik, before we get to wrapping up, I think you can offer some practical advice to a lot of folks here. I've asked you this before. Anyone who sees you sees you with a bag of two to three books that are like 300 plus pages long. I think last, the first time I met you, you had some compendium of like Irish history or something. And then you're, you're like reading two to three books a week. You got four of what? Four kids, five kids. Five kids, five now. kids, mashallah. mashallah. You know, and you're married, and you the chaplaincy work. What advice do you have for our listeners to become better readers? Mashallah, this is a very important thing. And uh, um, one of the things about me that I have to admit, like I said, I, from a young age, I, I loved reading, and I think it's very important. So I think with our youth, we have to really work with our youth to get them to read, because society is changing, where that's becoming a more rare, more and more rare thing. Um, and alhamdulillah for, for technology that we have more like um, podcasts and <laughs> we have like YouTube videos and people have access to a lot of information that's not always through reading. But I think we can all admit for, just from our own experience that reading is a more serious way of like learning and interacting with knowledge. Um, there's uh, something about the whole, I was mentioning this before we came in here, like when I'm interacting with students, sometimes I'm afraid, like as a chaplain, I'm like, what What can I even talk about? Like these guys have like grew up in a generation where they're like listening to Noman Ali Khan and all these guys who they love so much who are like speaking about all these topics. Like what new can I say to them? As opposed to like back in the day, like you give a lecture about something you read in Tafsir Ibn Kathir and you think like nobody ever heard of this before. <laughs> now, like you feel like people know so much that you're almost like, how can I give a lecture to them? But yeah. the re and that's out there like they've heard stories they've heard stuff but the reality is when you sit with people down a deep level the lack of knowledge is really stunning like yeah. the lack of knowledge of basic things is stunning so people and you know who knows if there are people who grew up their whole time listening to Oman Ali Khan or maybe that's but I'm saying regardless there's a thing where we have an access to knowledge and it, I think it's one of the most beautiful things in the world like I love to tell non-Muslims this and I'm like I don't know if you guys have this in your community but like we have young kids who like listen to religious lectures as like entertainment so I'm saying like that's a profound thing you can go there and see like the crowds trying to get into a religious lecture I could never imagine that I think that's such a beautiful thing but at the same time the phrase I use entertainment is a thing where somehow sometimes that's how they're looking at it and they're not seriously like accumulating knowledge and and benefiting and nothing is systematic and they're not picking up things and we need books to do that but we know there's a greater societal challenge which i'm not immune from that 
books are be- that attention spans are shrinking. Yeah, and people are having a hard time with books. Yeah, part of, that's part of the reason, to be honest, that I carry around so many books is yeah. because I read like books. I have like f- many books going at once, and I'm reading like part of this one, part of that one, part of that one. Because no. to just sit and read one topic is very difficult for people. So that's a benefit of it. But always having books because there's so much time when we're just like. You know, we're on the train, we're waiting for some... One of the saddest things is when you see people in those situations at a waiting room or on, and they're literally doing nothing like staring into the sky. I'm like, how can you do that? Like, pick up a book like that's tor- You're torturing yeah. yourself and wasting your life away. Like, Allah gave you such a short life. And Not you're just only like, that, you're torturing Abdul Malik by making him look at you. <laughs> it can seem that way. So I just want to give them a book or something. And been, but, but, but book, reading like anything else... And I say this for myself, too, because like I said, I have the challenge, too, is that um, it's something that you have to, you can only increase your uh, attention span. You can only make reading a habit by practicing it, mm, by yeah. doing it. And like like the famous statement from one of the Salaf that, you know, I I like worked at or suffered through the night prayer for 20 years and then I enjoyed the night prayer for 20 years. So, you have to like work at reading for the beginning you can't give up when it's not fun when it's tough when you're falling asleep or whatever you have to constantly push yourself a little more and we know this in every field like if we're working out we can't say work go the first day and like we're sore the next day and then say yeah. i'm never gonna work out again like yeah. it wasn't fun it wasn't what i was looking for like you have to keep pushing yourself more and more so it's, with reading i would encourage people and reading a variety of stuff this goes back to everything i've tried to talk about here today i think reading from a variety of people not reading from one narrow group I think theoretically is an interesting question. Theoretically, should we only read like the truth? Like we know our way of thinking. We only have one, our scholars. Theoretically, whether we should only, would we be better off if we only read that? That's an interesting question. I actually don't know the answer to that. But I know for sure that that's no one's life in, in the world. <laughs> Everyone in the world experiences, hears from all different kinds of people. And your only way to interact with those people and to be part of that society is to also consciously interact with all kinds of different knowledge and reading, different Muslim scholars, people beyond Islam, learning about Irish history. Like, do you understand how people work? You have to read fiction too. Like, fiction helps you really understand how people are, as well as if you're, mm. if you don't want to read fiction, you can do it through personal experience. Like I said, I learned so much from working with kids in foster care system from, from the early days of Iman. What, what, what most profound things is that you would go in both of those situations, volunteer work as well as my job, you'd have to go into different people's houses. And going into different people's houses who are foster kids, who are maybe where their parents live, who are drug addicts, who are people who are on the street, like going into their home, seeing how they actually live, seeing how they actually, you know, interact, talking to them about their school, talking to them about their family life. Going into the home, like when, when I first started working at Iman, going into homes of Palestinians who maybe they didn't speak that good English and, you know, I didn't speak good, I didn't speak Arabic at all at that time and like not really understanding each other, but just sitting with them while they cried over their children who were getting involved in gangs and all these things in a society that they didn't understand. Like when you understand other people's lives and how they feel, it makes you better able to understand the world and to deal with people. And that's what. You can get also from reading fiction, like to broaden your scope and get beyond just your own experience, but actually experience other people. So I think all these types of reading and diversity, I think it makes you stronger, able to um, represent in Islam that's meaningful to people in our time and place. Right. 
So how can people get a hold of you? Where can they reach out to you or see you in person? Alhamdulillah. It was easy to see me. I'm all around everywhere. But one of the easiest ways to reach me is uh, one of the places where I most often found is on Facebook. So uh, Abu Nur Abdul Malik Ryan on Facebook. Like Friend me there. Contact me there. Uh, you can follow you know, some of the stuff that I write and put out. Um, of course, I'm at DePaul University and... Uh, People can, con you know, you can just Google Abdul Malik Ryan at DePaul. You can get my email and everything. Uh, feel free to contact me. Give me a call. I'm around in the community. I'm always interested in meeting new people, hearing different perspectives. If anything, if you listen to some of this, I don't think anyone will listen to this whole thing. I don't know how you guys are going to edit it, but like... Um, <laughs> We're not. It's <laughs> just going out there. <laughs> Uh, it's good though because I, I told him I would do this. Like, if anyone asks me, like, what's a romantic selfie in the future, I always say, like, I will write something eventually. Inshallah, I still right. will. But now I'll just tell them listen to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, anyone who says they want release, like, we release a podcast <laughs> once a week, so you can break it up throughout the your your commute and whatnot. Yeah. For sure, I've been listening on my phone, to, so it's it's really handy. Um, or if they ask me my conversion story from now on, I'll just refer them to this podcast. <laughs> Please do. So I don't have to tell it again. Awesome. So Alhamdulillah. So, uh, so yeah. So reach me through through Facebook or any of those means. Um, uh, email me at DePaul. I would love to talk to anybody. Jazakallah khair, Abdul Malik. It was truly inspiring. To our listeners out there, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at themadmumluks at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-M-A-D. M-A-M-L-U-K-S. You can also follow us on Twitter at the Mad Mum Lukes or like our Facebook page by the same name. On behalf of Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim, this is Mahin for the Mad Mum Lukes signing off. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.